Isaiah 27, verses 1 through 13, turn there, get there on your device, follow along. It's our firm belief that as the Bible is being taught, the Lord will speak to you, but he'll also just speak to you from the word itself as you open up your heart to him uh, and uh, show you things that are wonderful about his love for you. So chapter 27, the topic, the Lord identifies Satan with the monster Leviathan, the title of the message, Mean Old Leviathan, Cause Me to Weep and Moan. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to uh, reverently sit before you, Lord, and wait for you to teach us your word. You said that when you left, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit who you would send to us was to be our teacher. And, and so, Lord, uh, that's what we expect. We expect that uh, your word would come alive in our hearing discerning between our soul and our spirit, speaking to us in that place only you can reach, and that we would see pictured there your love for us, your grace and your mercy, and the wonder of your promises. As always, Lord, we pray that if someone is here that doesn't know you personally, they've never believed on you, that they would come to know you, that your spirit would free their will, Lord, that they might believe and Lord, we pray for the kids and the young adults over in the youth ministry, uh, Lord, that there would be salvation taught and uh, hearts would be given to you there too as well. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The animated Sleeping Beauty is terrifying, even to me as an adult, even though I've seen it many times. Maleficent reveals to Philip her dark plan to lock him away for over a century until he's on the verge of death. Then she'll release to him Aurora. She will not have aged a single day. The fairies rescue Philip and arm him with the magical sword of truth and the shield of virtue. Maleficent surrounds the castle with a forest of thorns, but Philip manages to break through. She then teleports in front of him. In her sinister voice, she warns him, Now you shall deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell! Uh, scary. I mean, it's, and simultaneously, she transforms into a giant fire-breathing dragon. Philip throws the sword, blessed by the fairies, directly into Maleficent's heart, killing her. The moral of the story being, hang out with fairies. Right? <laughs> they seem to have the most, you know, the, anyway. Our text in Isaiah opens with a dragon being defeated by a sword-wielding hero. In that day, verse 1, the Lord will... Uh, with his severe sword, great and strong, punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. It's no fairy tale. Leviathan was an ocean serpent, a sea serpent, a dragon. It was real, but biblically also represents Satan. In the Revelation, we're told, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. He'll be cast out about midway through the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble that Jesus described as great tribulation. Enraged and having but a short time, Satan will attempt to kill every Jew on planet earth. He's going to fail. At the second coming of Jesus, the apostle John said, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Now, you and I, the church, we're not mentioned in this chapter of the dragon tail. No worries. We're going to find application to our own fight with Satan as the roaring lion who is on the prowl seeking to devour us. And so he may not be Leviathan to us, but he is a roaring lion. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the dragon has been bested for you. And number two, the dragon can be bested by you. Let's take a look at Jesus besting the dragon for us in verse one. Now, if you think about it, we grew up with dragons. Smaug from the Hobbit. Pete's dragon, Elliot. Puff, the magic dragon, right? Who remembers Puff the Magic Dragon? Those of you who don't, you need to go to your iTunes and just put in Puff the Magic Dragon. He lived by the sea, frolicked in the autumn woods in a place called Merrily, by the way. And uh, anyway, uh, now this goes way back. Cecil, the sea sick sea serpent, right on, three of you. <laughs> Falcor, never-ending story, and Toothless. How to train your dragon. I tried to get all generations of dragon lovers in there. Now, aren't dragons creatures of mythology? No. They existed alongside men. Here are some talking points from the good guys and gals over at Answers in Genesis. Number one, dragons were considered real until relatively recently. Number two, there are historical accounts, art, petroglyphs, and literature from cultures all around the world describing and depicting dragons. And number three, Ancient historians and writers describe seeing them firsthand, often in the context of seeing other types of animals that still exist today. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, we found this, it's a living fossil. What a joke. They say, oh, no, dinosaurs lived, I don't know, how many hundreds of millions of years ago, right? They weren't alongside man, even though they're found alongside man and fossils and all. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this, they'll find something that's, well, we don't know what that is. It's a living fossil. It's, I guess, been alive in the Marianas Trench for 300 million years. And then it decided to die so we could catch it. You know? so I, it's weird the way science is. And so dragons we take to be real, and we take them to be on Earth the same time as mankind. Um, the entire 41st chapter of Job is dedicated to this creature, Leviathan, described as a fierce and untamable beast. It is covered with impenetrable armor, has a mouthful of deadly teeth. I see like kind of a, a you know, a, a, what am I trying to think? Venom, kind of a venom thing going on there. Uh, and uh, it breathes light. It says it breathes fire and smoke and churns up the sea like an ink pot. Now, Psalm 74, verse 14 refers to the heads of Leviathan. And so it may have been a multi-headed beast. There's a great multi-headed beast in the old, old classic willow. And uh, yeah, it's Willow? No, never mind. Can't, I can't afford to get off track with these cultural references that no one understands anymore. Christians who are young earth creationists, like m most of us, but you don't have to be. We just like to be right. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help it. Uh, but we do believe dinosaurs and creatures like Leviathan lived alongside each other. Uh, they went extinct for the most part during the ice age that was caused by the global flood. Leviathan was an ocean dragon, maybe still is. It was the perfect monster to represent the devil. And so verse one, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, 
Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In that day, looks ahead to the future time of Jacob's trouble, the great adversary of God and the people of God, the serpent of old, who tempted our parents in the Garden of Eden, will finally fully be dealt with. The Lord is depicted as having a sword. In Kill the Beast stories, there's often a particular weapon, usually a storied sword that is needed. Uh, and so the Lord, you know, we read about him in the Revelation that he is able to kill with the sword of his mouth or just his words, we would say. And, and so bear in mind, this is not mythology, uh, but it is using imagery uh, in, order, in a poetic kind of a romantic sense to tell what's going to happen. David Gusick writes, this is interesting, while there's an illustrative element here, Isaiah may be more literal than we would like to admit. If Satan could manifest himself as a serpent to Eve in the Garden of Eden, why not also manifest himself as a dreadful sea dragon? Not that the dragon is Satan, but he could look like a dragon, right? He transforms himself into an angel of life. Uh, Satan seems like the very first sh uh, shapeshifter, you know, in terms of the ways that he can manifest himself. So who knows? Just tuck that away. This is a good time to address mythology. It's always suggested that the writers of the Bible borrowed from mythology to kind of tell their story. It's more likely that the Bible tells its story and then people make myths out of it. And so this is a genuine uh, story, uh, you know, of, of the Lord fighting the devil. And it's put in this uh, mythical context, but it's not a myth. The Lord's sword will be severe and great and strong. In the remaining verses, Isaiah will describe the nation of Israel having no worries anymore from the devil. When Jesus returns in his second coming, the devil will be incarcerated in the bottomless pit for the duration of the earthly kingdom. He won't be able by his cunning and skill to break out. He's going to be let out at the end of the thousand years, not for good behavior, however. He's going to be let out, sadly, to lead a final rebellion of human beings uh, against the Lord. Satan organizes that rebellion. Uh, he cannot prevail. It says the devil will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The, Satan is not the ruler of hell. It is not a domain he rules over. Uh, it is a place where he will be incarcerated and suffer for eternity, a place that was made for him and his followers, his angels. And unfortunately, it becomes the home of human beings for eternity of conscious suffering who have rejected the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Leviathan, we would say, has been bested by Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that by dying on the cross, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Principalities and powers describe two categories of supernatural beings under Satan's command. There are a lot more. Satan and company fight on right up to the second coming, but they are no match for King Jesus. And like we want to remind you all the time, Christians are not, are not portrayed in the Bible as, as doing battle with the devil or, or of, you know, going after demons. When we do read about demons and demon possession, Christians handle it easily in the New Testament. Paul turns around and just says, come out of her. Uh, you know, there isn't this mumbo jumbo. There's a new uh, movie. It's, uh, what is it? The Pope's Exorcist. Is that what it's called? Have you seen that? 
It's just like The Exorcist, only it's upgraded. I love movies with, with Catholic exorcisms because it's always like a cage fight between the prince and the devil. You know, by the time they're done, their ears are hanging off, and, you know, it's a, they finally win somehow, you know, and so, but it's, you know, finally the devil, who, you know, what's your name, you know, and if they, there seems to be some miraculous, you know, secret magical thing about knowing the name of a devil. My thing is, if the devil is a liar and his demons are liars, why would they tell you their real name, you know, and stuff? And my name is Joe. Uh, you know, but anyway, and there's always some axe to grind between the devil and, and the particular priest. And so, I mean, if you want to be an exorcist, be a Protestant exorcist, because Catholic exorcists get tore up. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a rough go. But uh, anyway, you know, um, just, you know, do your thing, serve the Lord, let Michael and his angels and all of these others, let them deal with that spiritual realm. Now, secondly, verses 2 through 13, the dragon can be bested by you. Bible prophecy is a constant ground of disagreement among believers. In contemporary Christianity, the major disagreements are with the role of the nation of Israel and the timing of the resurrection and the rapture of the church-age believers. Just so you know where we stand, first of all, we believe God continues to recognize the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his chosen people. Israel is the key to unlocking Bible prophecy. Israel will be the number one nation in the last days and on into uh, the kingdom, uh, and although Gentile nations will exist as well. And so God's still working with his people. And in fact, that is the purpose of the Great Tribulation, is to bring all of Israel to salvation. Secondly, we believe that the Lord has promised to keep his church entirely out of the Great Tribulation, will be in no part of it, uh, we're going to be removed before it starts. We hold to a pre-tribulation resurrection and rapture of the church age believers. If you want to be more descriptive, and we are dispensational premillennial pre-tribulation futurists. Okay, say that with me. We are dispensational premillennial pre-tribulation futurists. So there. <laughs> but we are. There are other ways of approaching it. Again, wrong ways, but no, I'm just, you know, I just like to kid around like that. We, when it comes to eschatology end times, it, it's, it's not a, an prophecy is, an, is essential, and the coming of Jesus again is essential, but as far as how people believe about some of this other stuff, it's not an essential doctrine. But we believe that the way we believe is the best biblical uh, way to approach this material, makes the most sense, and it seems to be what the Bible teaches. But if some of you have a different view of prophecy, you want to believe in a post-tribulation rapture uh, or a mid-tribulation rapture, we love you, uh, but we're just not into that. We're not going to get into that. We've looked at it. Believe me, we're not. Uh, a lot of times I read, I know I'm getting off track here, but I'll read on Twitter. People say, well, I used to be pre-mill, but then I read the Bible. And, you know, <laughs> please don't ever say that. Do you know how arrogant that sounds? It's like now I've read the Bible, and when you read the Bible, you'll see that I'm right. Because you, you only listen to what Pastor Gene says. You refuse, you refuse to study for yourself. I know that that's not true. You think, Pastor Gene's an idiot. He's, he's a fool, so I'm going to have to study this out for myself. I, but you're all good Bereans. Check it out. And, um, you know, we are, uh, again, dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulation, futurist. That's less than 280 characters, so you can fit that in a tweet. <laughs> 
Israel is God's vineyard. You might recall that in chapter 5, God said he would take away the hedge and it would be burned and break down the wall and it would be trampled down. He was describing discipline coming upon them for their idolatry. But in the end, the Lord restores his vineyard and cares for them in a precious way. In verse 4, fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them altogether. That's always a good idea to consult other Bible translations. In the ESV, this reads, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Commentators point out that during the time of Jacob's trouble, the Lord is pouring out wrath on earth dwellers. I have no wrath indicates a time beyond the tribulation, which would be the kingdom on earth. With universal peace on earth, uh, the Lord is not pouring out his wrath. There aren't earthquakes and thunderings and lightning strikes and, you know, the sun going dark and all of that. Uh, he's done with wrath and, and we're in the kingdom. Uh, and the picture I have here, again, this is, a, uh, there, this is uh, probably in a song. And the picture they're giving here is that the almighty God who poured out his wrath upon Christ rejectors now is looking for some weeds to burn. He's going to take all of that energy and say, find me a weed in this garden because this garden is precious to me and I will blow that weed to smithereens. Now, I have a very weak weed eater, Uh, you know, and I thought it's adequate for the amount of things I do. But I know some of you are like Tim the Tool Man Taylor, you know, with your weed eater. You've got like a gas-powered weed eater, you know, that's 20 feet long. It's got a saw blade on it. You have to be careful you don't cut your house off of the foundation, you know, and stuff. And so imagine God going after weeds. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the picture here. It's, it's almost comical. It's just really, really sweet. Verse 5, or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. Believers will survive to the end of the tribulation And they're rewarded with entry into the kingdom on earth in their mortal bodies. They will repopulate the earth. The children born to mortal believers in the kingdom will be born just like every other child ever has with a sin nature. And they will need to be saved. They will need to hear the gospel. And the Lord's hope is that they be at peace with him, that they be saved. That's what that means. In any dispensation, anywhere in the Bible you are, it is a bedrock principle that God saves, that Jesus saves, that he wants people to come to know him, that he works through various things. Whatever he does, he's working to explain himself and expound himself and so that men will come to know him. And it's no different in the millennial kingdom. Uh, Sadly, many, many millions will not. Uh, It says here in verse 6, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Take root in Jacob might be similar to what the Apostle Paul says in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. There he speaks of Gentile believers like us being grafted in as branches to the original vine that supports Israel. And so Israel and believing Gentile nations will share in the life of Jesus. They will maintain their own identity, however, and the church will maintain its own identity as well. And so we're all one in the Lord. We're all Christians in that sense in the end, but uh, that doesn't mean we're going to lose our identity. Uh, In fact, you read about nations on the earth in eternity. 
Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's for another time, but that's what he's talking about here. I don't think Jesus was talking about Israel's agricultural yields. Notwithstanding that, it is sort of a miracle how fruitful modern Israel has become. You can look that up. They uh, produce all of their own food, and it's nutritious food. Uh, I'm not making a joke about that. I mean, this is just, this is what you read about in agricultural journals. The Israelis invented drip irrigation, uh, and they have a masterful program for uh, preserving water and uh, conserving water. I mean, they're, they're on, it's, it's, I mean, ingenuity on steroids, or it's just the Lord showing them things, right? And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Verse 7, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? God deals very differently in the tribulation with those who are not his children. Those who do Israel harm will be dealt with in judgment, not discipline. Now, Jews will nevertheless be struck. We read in the Revelation, for example, it was granted to the Antichrist to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over tribe, tongue, and nation. And so terrible things will happen to the Jews uh, in the uh, Great Tribulation. God's two witnesses that come uh, and, and serve him for three and a half years, they'll be killed and then they'll be raised from the dead as everybody watches. But there's going to be trouble for believers in the Tribulation. But, uh, and that tells us that uh, uh, we were, are going to have trouble in this age in which we live. But it's going to be regulated by God. Uh, the, uh, God says here, uh, you know, he has struck Israel, but not as he struck those who struck them. And, and so our suffering and our sorrow is regulated. Now, you think, well, God, how about you regulate it just out of my life? How about you deregulate it? I, I'm, I'm done with it. I don't want it anymore. Or what are you waiting for? And what we always fail to realize, this always comes up, you know, in um, television programs or in the movies, it's like, everybody's mad at God all the time, and they always throw down with God, you know, why would God do this or allow this and this and this? And the holy person, the priest or whoever it is, like, well, who knows? God moves in mysterious ways. No, I, tell them why. Because mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden and brought a flood of evil with it, and God said, I can deal with this, but it's going to take about 6,000 years of your time. It's not an easy thing to get rid of the sin that you brought into the universe. And then just on a personal level, let's say Christianity is true, which it is, and the Lord had come five years ago, how many of you would not have been Christians five years ago? How many of you would be in the tribulation? How about 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100? And so, you know, when the Lord comes back and he's coming back, he will set things right and he's got a masterful plan for it. That's why, what we're studying but it's going to be too late for people to get saved at a certain point, and that's going to be a tragedy. And so God regulates our problems, and we need to believe that um, you know, all things do work together for good and that we can handle in the Spirit, by the Spirit, by yielding to the Spirit, those things that the Lord brings into our lives. Don't worry about handling it now. You look at people and say, oh, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, you can when it comes because the Lord will give you grace. You don't need, if you don't have a debilitating disease, you don't need the grace for it. God, does, you don't need to store, you know, it's like, a, like an extra gas tank, right? Remember the old VWs? They had a, you know, they didn't have a gas gauge. You just ran out of gas and then you turned a lever and you had the second tank. It's no wonder the Germans lost the war. But anyway, uh, 
I know, I'll put a gas gauge. But uh, pretty crazy stuff. So I don't know why I got off on that. But anyway, I, it'll come to me in about 10 minutes. It, or maybe some, my wife would come up and give me my medicine right now. So. <laughs> Not that it was medicine that she gave President Joe. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, yeah, you're, it's better, you're better off not knowing anyway. just ties into this, me being an imbecile again. But anyway, uh, where am I? Hang on. Okay, yeah. So, verse 8. In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the, end, uh, in the day of the east wind. The new uh, revised standard version renders this. By expulsion, by exile, you struggled against them. With a fierce blast, you removed them as in the day of the east wind. This is a prophecy, of course, that Israel would be expelled and removed, and they were first the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom by the Babylonians, and then again in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem until May 14 of 1948 when miraculously Israel returned to their land and became a nation in the modern world. Verse 9, therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. The message version renders verse 9, but the good news is that through this experience, Jacob's guilt was taken away. The evidence that his sin is removed will be this. He will tear down alien altars, take them apart stone by stone, and then crush the stones into gravel. The experience of the great tribulation is where Israel will be disciplined and they will uh, turn to the Lord. Now they will realize they are being disciplined as sons and daughters, not being judged. There's a huge difference. And you think, well, what's the difference? Well, think of it this way. If you have a loving father, if, if you have a loving father, you would rather be disciplined by him than judged by an impartial judge who doesn't love you and doesn't have your best interest in mind. I'm not, I'm not saying judges are evil, judges are wonderful. All the judges I know are the most special people in the world. They deserve our honor. I'm talking to one particular judge right now. But anyway, uh, but no, I mean, seriously, and you know, a judge, a judge would rather turn you over to your father's discipline too. <laughs> you know, and so... Israel will understand. And, and when you read some of the, the rabbis throughout history, they don't complain uh, like Gentiles do. They don't say, why is God allowing all this? They know why. Because they were idolaters. Their parents all blew it. The, 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 you know, generation after generation. And so they don't blame God. They cry out to God for deliverance. They pray for themselves as if they personally were the sinners. Daniel says, we have done this. And we have sinned. They identify with that and stuff. And so, uh, you know, discipline is very different than judgment. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. The calf will feed. There it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them. And he who formed them will show them no favor. The desolate city here we take to be Babylon, future Babylon. The Bible indicates that Babylon will be rebuilt and serve Antichrist incorporated as the capital of the end times government and economy until they are destroyed in Revelation 17 
and 18. Now this is of real import to the people uh, contemporary with Isaiah because it was the Babylonian empire that would destroy them. And so they were, God says, hey, the best thing I can tell you about the Babylonians, I'm going to use them to overrun you because of your idolatry and sin, but in the far future, I will destroy them once and for all, and then you will inherit the kingdom. Verse 12, it should come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. Albert Barnes explains, the use of thresh and gather shows that the image is taken from the act of collecting fruit or grain after the harvest. And the expression means that as the farmer gathers in his fruit, so God will gather in his people. In the figure, it is supposed that the garden or vineyard of the Lord extends from the Euphrates to the Nile, that his people are scattered in all of that country, and there shall be agitation or a shaking in all that region as when a farmer shakes his fruit from the tree or beats out his grain and that the result would be that all those scattered people would be gathered into their own land. I like it that God said that they would be gathered one by one. Where we see a crowd, God always sees the individuals. And so we talk about the church or the nation of Israel, and that's correct. But God says the church is a bunch of individual people that I know personally and that I look upon personally. And so when God says things like, he gave the world his only begotten son, it means he gave it to you personally. Everybody else too, right? But, but you're not just one of a group of people. You know, and I believe it's true, and it's not an exaggeration to suggest that Jesus would have come and died for you if you were the only person. Because that's how the Lord intends us to believe him that he has that much love uh, and, and all. And so think about that. Uh, you know, God loves you individually. He knows you. He's working in you. You are his project. He said he will complete it. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Um, lock into your relationship with the Lord and, uh, you know, push your trouble aside and bring it to the Lord. Cast your cares upon him. It shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. End times trumpet blasts have Christians confused. They're confused because of the phrase, the last trumpet. Some of your Bibles, it reads the last trump, but I don't want to use that terminology because people think I've gotten political. Uh, the last trumpet. According to first, here's a, one guy, uh, Reynold Showers, he's an apologist, he explains, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last trumpet will be sounded, and then, according to Matthew 24, there will be the sound of a trumpet when the Lord Jesus comes out of heaven in the second coming. And so some people say, look, you obviously have a trumpet blown at the rapture, it's the trumpet of God, it's the last trumpet. And you obviously have a trumpet being blown at the second coming of Christ after the tribulation. Therefore, the rapture and the second coming must take place at the same time because that's when the last trumpet is blown. End of discussion. Well, guess what? Neither of those trumpets is the last trumpet ever blown. After the resurrection and rapture of the church and after the second coming, for the 1,000 years, the inhabitants of earth will attend the various feasts of God, including the Feast of Trumpets. What do you think they play at the Feast of Trumpets? 
The theremin? No, trumpets. And so, so trumpets, I don't understand trumpets, but some of you in the military do, uh, because trumpet sounds, bugle sounds, direct you in different ways. For troop movements and uh, different things like that, reveille and all. Uh, and so you listen for different trumpet blasts. And so when they say the last trumpet, to me, it's the last trumpet of the church age. It's the trumpet that believers will hear that gathers the dead in Christ and living believers and no one else. It's, it's your tone. And the last trumpet of Matthew 24 and 25 is the last trumpet ending the great tribulation. It's the last trumpet anybody will hear before Jesus returns to solve the problem of Armageddon. Firefighters have tones, right? You're familiar with this if you're a firefighter or not. From my house, I can hear the tones at station one here. I'll be out, you know, working in the front yard and I'll hear. (laughs) Something like that. And they tell firefighters what's going on, which crew, what the situation is, and they respond to their own tone. There's no such thing as a last tone. That was the last tone, man. Well, it was the last tone of my shift telling me I could go home maybe, but it's not the last tone ever. So don't get drawn into this dumb trumpet argument. Uh, You know, God seems to love trumpets and shofars, and he has people blow them a lot. Isaiah also refers to a great trumpet here that gathers Jews from where they were scattered to Jerusalem. Satan is on the loose. He remains the ruler of this world. He has a hierarchy of malevolent supernatural beings to help him. He isn't described to the church as Leviathan, but as a lion. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you're a hiker or a camper, you go into the wilderness, you know how to resist certain potentially dangerous beasts, or you should. If it's a grizzly, drop down, cover your neck and head with your arms, Maybe he'll leave you alone or he'll only maul you to the point where you're still alive. I don't recommend that you watch The Revenant if you are a camper in the area where grizzly bears will be. All I'm saying is that when I first saw the bear scene, I thought, what stuntman sacrificed his life to be mauled by that bear? It is so real, it blew my mind. I'm not saying you should go watch it later on YouTube because you'll never go out into the wilderness. In fact, I don't go into my backyard anymore. (laughs) You never know when a grizzly is on the loose, right? If it's not a grizzly, slowly wave your arms above your head and tell the bear to back off. Hey, bear. You watch the the show alone. They're always going, hey, bear. Hey, bear. That, to me, is an invitation. Yeah, what would you like? It's like Yogi Bear. It's like asking Yogi Bear to come in for dinner. But anyway, that's what you're supposed to do. Do not run. Unless you are with someone you can outrun. <laughs> All right. Now this is now let's get this is serious. Peter next said, resist him steadfast in the faith. That means whatever else it means, it means you can best the devil. That you can resist him. Peter learned one lesson about this. When Judas in league with Satan came to point out Jesus to the mob that was sent to arrest him. What did he do? He pulled out a sword. To paraphrase Sean Connery, just like a Christian, to bring out a sword to a cross fight. 
It wasn't a sword fight. The Lord wasn't in a sword fight with the forces of evil. He wouldn't slay the dragon with any physical weaponry. No, he was himself pierced by the hammered nails which fashioned him to the cross. His side pierced with a spear to make sure he was dead. He would not wield the sword. The sword would come against him on the cross, as it were. And in that manner, by those means, he would defeat the forces of evil, the devil, the great Leviathan, and all the angels that had followed him and all of his supernatural beings. He would rise from the dead and defeat the devil and death and ultimately sin because he bore in his body those marks. And so we, we don't fight the devil with the weapons of the, of the devil, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not earthly. They're not fleshly. They are spiritual. You've heard that thing. You probably have it in your house on a plaque somewhere. It says the devil trembles at the sight of the weakest saint on their knees. It's true. Whatever spiritual blessing God has given you is sufficient to best the devil, no matter what his weaponry is. And, and he's, man, he's nuclear, right? I, I mean, but uh, I think I told you this story once before. I, we had a kid here in the church. He's still here, but he's not a kid anymore. But you know Rochambeau, you know, rock, paper, scissors? And so I like, it's fun. We, you know, we do that all the time to decide different things. One day he, oh, there he is right there. One day he, uh, we were doing rock, paper, scissors, and he, he goes like this. <laughs> I go, what's that? And he goes, nuclear blast. <laughs> okay, what, what does that mean? He goes, well, nu- it defeats everything. <laughs> the cross, if you'll hear me and not think I'm irreverent, it's like a nuclear blast against the devil. Humility, submission to God, those kinds of things, that's how you win. That's how Jesus won. You know, the Bible says he could have called legions of angels to deliver him and to save him and to wipe out his enemies. But instead, it was enough for him when they came to him. They said, hey, who are you looking for? And he, they said, Jesus. And he says, that's me or I am. And they all fell down just to remind them who was really in control, who was really in charge. But he had to go to the cross. And we have to bear the cross. We have to suffer and fill up the sufferings of our Lord. And that's how you win. Soft answer turns away wrath. And so plug into that. Since believers are consistently described as being in Christ, Satan is no match for us so long as we abide in the Lord.